Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 250 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Michael Chertoff, the executive chairman of the Chertoff Group and the former United States Homeland Security Secretary from 2005 to 2009. Michael is the chairman of the board of directors of BAE Inc., that stands for British Defense and Aerospace Incorporation, former judge of the United States Court of Appeals, Third Circuit, former assistant United States Attorney General, former special counsel for the Senate Whitewater Committee, and former law clerk for United States Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Jordan. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, you know, a lot of what I do in my business now is focused on enhancing security for people, both in terms of cyberspace and also in terms of, of obviously, the physical space. You know, we live in a dangerous world. Uh, People read all the time about ransomware and other kinds of cyber acts, and we try to upgrade the ability of people to defend themselves as well as to warn them about what's coming down the pike. I also work on a number of projects involving Internet governance. I do on a kind of pro bono basis. I'm vice chair or co-chair of the Global Commission on Stability in Cyberspace, uh, which is sponsored partly by the U.S., partly by the Dutch, uh, dealing with issues about how do we secure cyberspace and make sure it remains a a free uh, area for people to enjoy and participate in. Um, I work on um, other issues involving, for example, election security and um, securing democracy against people who are trying to erode it. So I'm still pretty much involved in public policy things. Now, you come from a long line of family members in the law. Your dad and your grandpa were both rabbis dealing with Talmudic law, and then you became an attorney yourself. Would you speak about how you became so interested in security, uh, particularly, especially perhaps that happened in law school, uh, and how you became interested or or aware of the growing threats and that you wanted uh, to to our security in America and what you wanted to do to ameliorate those threats? So I was, uh, when I I left law school and after clerking and having a couple years in private practice, I became an assistant U.S. attorney, I became a prosecutor. I did organized crime cases. Uh, mainly against La Cosa Nostra or the Mafia. And then later I became United States Attorney, and part of what I did did involve national security issues. There was some counterintelligence and counterespionage matters that we had to investigate. Uh, When I came back in 2001 to become Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Criminal Division, um, I arrived and was sworn in in June of 2001. And on September 11th, that job changed. There was no Homeland Security Department, and in 2001, the responsibility for dealing with domestic terrorism or any attacks in the U.S. fell to the Department of Justice. So under Attorney General Ashcroft, I was, and with, along with FBI Director Bob Mueller, I was one of the people who was in charge of what is our response going to be to terrorism, and we built the entire counterterrorism architecture over the next couple of years, and that dramatically changed the nature of my job from one pretty much all involved in making criminal cases to one in which counterterrorism and national security was a big part of the job. So having done that, and then being on the the Court of Appeals, um, when there was a vacancy at the Department of Homeland Security, the president asked me if I would 
take that position on <clears throat> because he knew that I had been involved in the very uh, early stages of actually developing our entire architecture of counterterrorism. And having lived through 9-11, that was one job you could not say no to. So as a consequence, I, I was you know, honored to accept. I was secretary for four years, and then I retained an interest in these issues, obviously, after I left. Now, you did work uh, on investigating the September 11th attacks, right. and you mentioned that, that eventually that led to you becoming secretary of the newly formed uh, Department of Homeland Security. Of course, there had been many terrorist attacks on Americans prior to September 11, 2001. There had been Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City bombings, the Unabomber. Abroad, we'd had attacks in Kenya. Uh, you also had um, the World Trade Center bombed in the early 90s in New York City. So there had been uh, plenty of experience uh, with Department of Justice and, and American federal government handling and responding to uh, terrorism in the past. Can you describe what changed? How does the introduction of a new federal depart agency, the Department of Homeland Security, and the reorganization of America's response to terror, how did that change, uh, I guess, the way we responded to terror, and what was your role in that? Well, uh, McVeigh and, and the Unabomber are somewhat different. The Unabomber was basically one crazy person mm-hmm. uh, who was sending bombs. The Unabomber was a terrorist. Uh, it was domestic terrorism. He was affiliated with a very small group of of right-wing extremists, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't p- pose part of a larger threat. Uh, Al-Qaeda and international terrorism did originally target us overseas. We had the embassy bombings in the 90s. We had the attack on the USS Cole, but obviously 9-11 took it to a whole new level. It was the most devastating attack against civilians in the continental United States in the history of the United States. And um, although we had been um, warned by bin Laden that he was declaring war on us, this really did make it a war. And it put us in a situation where we realized that we needed to rebuild our entire way of dealing with the issue of global terrorism uh, because this was likely to be with us for a, a long period of time. So the purpose of the department, um, which was actually begun under Governor Ridge, I mean, I was the second secretary, was to bring together all of the elements of federal power that are involved in securing our borders and securing our critical infrastructure and to put them in one single department as opposed to having them distributed among a number of different departments. And the idea was to have a unity of effort in terms of a strategy to make sure we had control of our borders, had control of our aviation and transportation security, um, did have a strategy for dealing with our critical infrastructure, and was able to do that as part of a single approach. Now, you speak about the formation of Department of, Department of Homeland Security as a unity of effort. Of course, this was under Republican President George W. Bush, and at times the Republican Party is associated with smaller government. So there may be those out there in society who question, well, that's interesting. A Republican president comes to power and he expands government by creating a new agency. How do you respond to that sort of opinion? You know, I think, I think um, first of all, obviously, if you live through 9-11, um, you realize that national defense and national security are not areas where you want to be um, kind of curmudgeonly about investing in government because uh, who else but the federal government is going to defend us against overseas threats? It doesn't mean that you, you spend money willy-nilly, but it does mean that having a department to bring together the various already existing elements um, 
seemed to make a lot of sense. And I will say that during my time, uh, we had kind of almost the opposite problem of most departments. People wanted to throw more money at us, and we had to keep saying, no, we really don't need that much, or it's more than we can absorb. Why don't you wait? Because everybody obviously was very much invested in in showing that we could raise our level of security. So your path is very interesting. You had been on the judiciary side. You've been counselor uh, in the legislature, in the Senate Whitewater Committee hearings. You ended up being a federal judge, an incredibly sought-after position, and one of 93 individuals who became the U.S. Attorney General. Uh, it's just U.S. so... Yeah, U.S. Attorney, yeah. <laughs> yeah, U.S. Att- uh, attorney. So how is it... I guess I'm interested in, in your path, and each milestone that, that we enumerated earlier seems to be a career topper for many individuals, something that many would aspire to, few would get, and somehow you, you'd move on. How did you decide, you know, I, I'm so glad I'm a judge, I'm going to move to be a U.S. attorney, or, you know, I'm going to be a, a special, well, actually that came later, but how do you determine, how did you? How did it come that you were actually a, a cabinet secretary after being a judge? Just... Yeah, well, I, you know, I think, you know, the lesson I learned was, I mean, you do want to have a plan, you want to be doing something in your life that you're interested in doing. But you, you shouldn't wed yourself too closely to the plan so that when an opportunity arises, you're not free to seize it. So, you know, obviously I, I became a prosecutor, and the normal career path there is to, you know, do bigger and bigger cases, ultimately maybe be U.S. attorney or go to the mm-hmm. main justice. Mm-hmm. And then a fair number of prosecutors wind up being judges. So that was kind of, if you'd asked me in the 90s, what did I imagine, you know, if my ambitions came to pass, would be my career path, that would be it. That being said, when an opportunity arose and and circumstances changed with 9-11, um, you know, then you really have to say what's important. And what was important to me was rendering public service in what I thought was the most consequential event of my lifetime, which was 9-11 and, and the war on, on uh, al-Qaeda. And so, therefore, I, I mean, I decided I was going to step out of my original plan and do this, and I, I never regretted it. I got to do some remarkable things as secretary, very different from being a lawyer. I mean, I loved being a lawyer. I loved going to try cases in court. What were some of the more remarkable things you were able to accomplish as secretary? Well, I mean, as secretary, I mean, I probably walked, flew, horseback rode, or drove over every mile of the southern border. Um, I was in Afghanistan. I was in Iraq. You actually led to the construction of a 700-mile fence along the... Yeah, I actually welded fence. You you welded a fence. Yes, people people talk about building a wall. I actually built some wall. I still have the welding hat. Um, And we built about... I think we we actually... I guess Congress authorized 700. We got about 602 or 603 done by the time I left. So I have a question on that topic. President Trump is very interested in fulfilling his campaign promise to build a wall along the southern border. Oftentimes, one might deduce from that statement that we don't have a wall on the southern border. And then, of course, I'd like to throw in there that during the campaign in 2016, you came out and endorsed the Democratic opposition, Hillary Clinton, someone who you had previously uh, prosecuted or investigated with the Senate Whitewater Committee. Can you speak about how... The, that campaign was shaped by your understanding of what constitutes national security interests. So first on the issue of, the, of a wall, you know, fencing or a wall is a tool. It is not a religious artifact that you worship. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the southern border, it's about 2,000 miles. 
there are a lot of natural obstacles. There are mountains, there are rivers. Where a wall or a fence makes sense is in those parts of the southern border where the border is very close either to a, a large-sized town or to like a highway or transportation center. And the reason is because in those areas, traditionally, people would literally just run across the border and disappear mm -hmm. and vanish within you know, you know, a matter of two or three minutes. So the border patrol was not able to intercept them. So we estimated about 700 miles, give or take, of the border would benefit from fencing or a wall that wouldn't stop people because you can't stop people, but it slows them up. And that delay allows the Border Patrol to get there and intercept them and, and send them back. So, um, you know, this was just a kind of a straightforward practical assessment. Uh, in other parts of the border, a wall adds nothing. It's just a waste of money. But you do want technology. You want to have radar. You want to have sensors. You want to have roads so you can, again, drive there and intercept people. So we looked at the entire border that way, and we identified those areas where we thought fencing or a wall would add value, mm -hmm. and that was the, about 700 miles or so. Mm -hmm. We got, you know, the vast majority of it built. Uh, probably some of it needs to be upgraded, and there's some other areas that need to be filled in. But on most of the rest of the border, honestly, it's a matter of technology. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is about being smart. It's not about making a symbolic point. Uh, the other thing about controlling illegal immigration is if you enforce the rules on employment of people who are um, in the country illegally, if you enforce it against employers as we did, that actually dries up a lot of the attraction that pulls people across the border. So again, that's a smarter and more efficient way of reducing some of the illegal migration. The last thing is, and I know, I know. Um, you know, the current chief of staff, former Homeland Secretary John Kelly, knows this from his time in, in, uh, in the military. A lot of this is stabilizing South America and Central America. If, if you have, you know, functioning economies and a rule of law in Central and South America, many of those people are very happy to stay at home. They don't want to run away or leave. But when you have gang violence or um, security upheavals, or a, a, a terrible economy, people are going to go flee to save their lives. So you've got to look at the whole thing as a system where you help build south of the border, you do have some infrastructure on the border, but you also have a system inside the country, our country, where we discourage the hiring of people who are not here with proper authorization. Sounds like there is a foreign, uh, a, a national security argument to be made in favor of direct foreign assistance in order to stabilize other nations. Absolutely. You know, if there's one lesson we've learned in the last 20 years is um, what's, what happens overseas doesn't stay overseas. It visits us at home. When you have failed states... Mm -hmm and people in distress. You, first of all, you get a migration problem. You see that now in Europe. And then you also have a petri dish where terrorists and transnational criminal groups can recruit young people because those people have no hope. And so they see the gang or the, or the terrorist organization as their only way to do something meaningful. So security doesn't begin at home, but begins actually overseas. If we can work with partners to stabilize and build secure societies. They don't have to be models of Jeffersonian democracy, but they have to be basically functioning societies. That relieves a lot of the pressure mm -hmm. that we feel on our own borders.
Uh, on the topic of immigration, in the 1980s, President Ronald Reagan uh, introduced some <coughs> immigration reform, uh, and some studies have shown that that actually uh, increased illegal immigration to some extent because there were seasonal migrant workers who would come to California, do some agricultural work, and return to their families in Mexico. Once the border was sealed, they no longer could return and have a safe uh, Faith that they'd be able to work again next season. So they would remain in California where they previously would have left, and then they'll bring their family over illegally into the United States because they're fearful that they couldn't get through the border again. Do you have, now that uh, President Trump has spoken about removing President Obama's DACA and has asked for immigration reform on a congressional level, do you have any thoughts about, and to, from a national security perspective, what immigration policy ought to be or the effects of immigration policy in the past? You know, we tried to do the reform in uh, when President Bush was president, and I think everybody on both Republican and Democratic side pretty much agreed on what you what you need to do. And I think you're exactly right. And when you seal the border, what you're doing is, in a way, you're promoting a situation where people come here and then they stay here and they don't go back. Many people, if they were given the opportunity to come with a temporary work visa to do seasonal work. Uh, and you gave them identification, would be very happy to go back home again. They, they're not interested in being U.S. citizens. They want to go back and live where their families are. Um, and as long as they know they can go back and forth, um, they're happy with that. And that also gives us our, the ability <clears throat> to monitor where they are because they have identification. That would take a significant chunk of illegal migration off the table and, and would cure that. And then what would be left would be, would be people, including criminals, who are coming maybe not for benign reasons. But, but it would be far fewer than the total number of people who migrate in. And we could then focus law enforcement on people that we really don't want because they're here for a bad reason. So in many ways, having um, a system where you can have temporary workers coming back and forth would actually enhance law enforcement because we wouldn't be wasting time chasing people who are you know, making beds in, in, a, in a motel or doing gardening, we focus our attention on that minority of people who are coming for a bad reason. Right. So speaking about those individuals who are coming from a bad reason, you mentioned earlier that essentially the war on terror began with September 11th, albeit there were instances of terror, Correct. especially in the 1970s with airline hijackings and, and, and everything. So I wonder... And then, of course, you've spoken about your current uh, interest in cyber warfare and the role that uh, cyber war is, is increasingly playing on the global stage from uh, an American uh, cyber bug that attacked the Iranian nuclear facilities to many other examples that I'm sure you're aware of. I wonder what our criteria is for what when the war on terror would ever end as perhaps in immigration, when does the war on drugs ever end? And it seems as though it's evolving into this new cyber uh, f frontier. Can you speak about what would constitute a successful victory against a war on terror? And, and can you speak about how it's evolving, particularly within the cyber realm? So, first of all, we talk about, uh, you know, what ends the war on terror, so to speak. And here we're really talking about terrorism that has largely been driven by um, radical Islamist um, groups that believe that terrorism will achieve their objectives. Although, to be honest, we're going to, we've seen some, and we saw in Charlottesville, uh, 
terrorism domestically coming from extreme right-wing groups, and historically we've had it from extreme left-wing groups. Just to interject, for those who aren't aware, Secretary Chertoff just mentioned Charlottesville was an attack by a young white male supremacist who killed uh, African-Americans, uh, American citizens uh, in an African-American church. Actually, that was, Dil- that was, uh, I, I was Charlottesville. Oh, it? Charlottesville. Okay, was, sorry. That Charlottesville was, the, uh, was the, the white supremacist who ran over and killed a woman who was a counter-demonstrator. But we did, as you point out, have Dylan Roof, who went into an African-American church. He was a white supremacist, and he started to shoot and kill people in the church. Yeah. So we, we, we've seen, as we did with Timothy McVeigh in the past, a, a, a beginning of an increase in terrorism on the extreme right and we're going to we may well see it on the extreme left so terrorism is is always been a feature of life um, the scale of radical islamist terrorism with isis until recently was a, an order of magnitude above prior terrorist mm-hmm. situations because they actually controlled territory and also there was a period of time al-qaeda in Afghanistan really controlled territory. Mm-hmm. And and so that was an order of magnitude bigger. I think the reality is that terrorism is going to be with us uh, for the foreseeable future. W- the question is, will it be contained and reduced or will it expand and flourish? And in particular, will they be able to carry out attacks using weapons of mass destruction? Now, you raise the issue of cyber. Um, we have seen cyber attacks um, that could be considered terrorist attacks. For example, the ransomware, the WannaCry ransomware attack of earlier this year, which it's been reported has been attributed to the North Koreans. You could argue that that is an act of terrorism. Uh, it may also simply be a clumsy attempt to get money for the North Korean government, which doesn't really participate in the global economy. But if I were going to predict, I would predict that we are likely to see more cyber terrorism in the future. And on the topic of big data, um, of course, uh, there were cases such as Edward Snowden where you had WikiLeaks uh, loss of, and then of course some of what he says his motivations are is a massive data surveillance program that the National Security Agency was uh, participating in. As you, this is public interest podcast, and as you consider uh, the balance, the scale where on one hand you have security and the other you have liberty, civil liberties, protected freedoms enshrined in our constitution. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on massive data surveillance by private companies and separately of the federal government in the United States and when and, and how in your mind you go through an appropriate use of power to authorize wiretapping, warrants, or warrantless searches, especially through electronic data. So, um, uh, actually, it's a topic in and of itself uh, that's very complicated and, and very interesting, and actually finishing a book on this. But basically, technology um, has really changed the way we need to understand how our legal system operates, because now we generate so much data about ourselves that, in a way, the idea that you can keep uh, information about yourself hidden is rapidly becoming a pipe dream. Um, locational data things we buy, things we we look for online, where we go, all this winds up generating a huge amount of data. Uh, it's kept, there's a limitless ability to store it. And given modern data analytics, there's a limitless ability to analyze it. Now, there's some good things that come from that. It can be a good way of identifying people who pose a threat to our lives and our safety. But it also can be inhibiting. And I think one of the things that we need to think about is 
to move from a system where we focus entirely on how do you keep your data hidden into one way say, okay, we accept the data cannot be completely hidden, but you should have a right to control your data. It shouldn't be available to anybody who wants to look at it. There should be requirements for consent in some cases or for legal process in some cases. If someone wants to access the data, if someone wants to use the data in some way, and if someone wants to sell the data. So what I'm suggesting is that we, we move away from a uh, uh, secrecy model of what our rights are to a data control model where we own our data, including data about us, and within reason we have a right to say yes or no, or at least have a court pass on whether um, that data is accessible to other parties. So a cyber data bill of rights. In, in a way, that's right. And one that's a little more granular and a little bit more flexible than the all or nothing proposition of traditional physical privacy, where it was simply a question of are you closing the door or are you opening the door? Now, as we approach the end of the podcast, a few questions as we shift to a more personal uh, <clears throat> approach to your story. You know, you prosecuted... Uh, politicians, Jersey City Mayor Gerald McCann, who prosecuted Italia, Italian mafia in the New York City area, organized crime, corporate fraud, you put away Kenneth Lay, Jeffrey Skilling. I mean, people with a lot of resources, people who are dangerous, who fought against terrorists. Have you ever considered any sort of personal risks or threat to your personal safety as you've made decisions to try to advance public safety for the public? I, I didn't really, you know, traditionally when you went against the La Cosmos or the Mafia, they didn't really do anything with respect to prosecutors or, or FBI. Now, there are some criminal groups that actually were different, like the Sicilian Mafia would kill prosecutors uh, in Italy, and the Albanians, for example, uh, could be threatening of prosecutors. Um, I didn't. I had a couple of occasions there were some threats, but not really anything that rose to a serious level. Obviously, with terrorism... You know, terrorists do carry out threats, but um, I always felt I was pretty comfortable with security uh, that I had. I'm mindful about where I am, mm -hmm. and and I try to have situational awareness, not so much because I think people are going to target me per se, but because I think in this day and age, you know, you can walk down the street of Paris and someone can get behind the wheel of a car and decide he wants to run you over. So you've got to be um, at least somewhat aware of your surroundings and have a thought through what you would do in the event of some kind of an emergency. A final two-part question for you, uh, Michael. I'd like to ask you to speak to the American public that may be listening to this episode and speak to them about your motivations, <coughs> why you're so driven to pursue justice, to try to right wrongs, enhance security for individuals whom you've never met and whom you never will meet, and what you hope the legacy of those efforts will be at the end of your career. You know, Jordan, that's a really timely question. I think a lot of people, <clears throat> not just in the U.S., but around the world, are asking themselves, you know, why is it in our society now there seems to be an unprecedented level of mistrust and people becoming tribal and, uh, you know, uh, focused on their own identities and not believing in any institutions? And, um, you know, I think there are complicated answers to this, but one thing I believe in is the rule of law and fairness. And if you look at, like, the Arab Spring, for example, that got started because a... a um, a street vendor was being unfairly treated by a local police officer, I think in Tunisia, and he set himself on fire in protest. And what that brings home is, if people don't feel they get a fair shake, <clears throat> I think that that erodes trust in all of our institutions. I will tell you this. Um, 
I remember two big financial scandals prior to 2008 that I was um, in the Department of Justice uh, handling. One was the savings and loan crisis, um, which was, I, I think, kind of at the end of the 80s, when a lot of savings and loans went bust because of fraud. And then there was the Enron case you mentioned, and similar financial fraud cases right around the beginning of this century. In both cases, the Department of Justice, and I was involved in this, was very, very aggressive and vigorous in investigating and prosecuting people who had committed crimes. And I always believed that one of the reasons to do that and to, to achieve justice was so people said, you know, maybe there was a failure here and that someone committed fraud, but the government has stepped up and they've gotten justice and they've punished it and they're taking it seriously. I think when you look at what happened in 2008 with a huge meltdown financially, there was a little bit of a sense that perhaps the government was afraid or unwilling to pursue malfactors as aggressively. And frankly, I think a lot of the bitterness you saw that came out of that was people saying, well, why did we lose our houses but no bankers went to jail? So to me, pursuing justice, not, not unfairly, but pursuing it fairly but energetically is kind of a foundation of what makes for a healthy society and trust in our institutions. And that has been Michael Chertoff, the former United States Homeland Security Secretary, the chairman of the board of BAE Inc., a former judge, assistant U.S. attorney, former special, special counsel in the U.S. Senate, uh, who speaks uh, about uh, a fundamental belief in fairness and the rule of law, who asks, uh, who sees himself as somebody who plays a role in enabling justice to be enforced and carried out to make people have a sense that uh, there is fair play in America and that if you do bad, uh, bad actors will be punished. He has taken the opportunity to seize opportunities. Carpe diem seems to be the mantra of Michael's life. Uh, and though he acknowledges that when it comes to criminal justice and uh, enhancing security, you can't stop bad actors, but you can slow them down. He speaks uh, about various policy solutions from a temporary work visa, visa that might help law enforcement by allowing them to tighten up uh, the universe of, of uh, illegal immigrants who are posing a threat to national security, to speaking about the diminishment of our privacy online and potentially suggesting that we ought to create a cyber data bill of rights. Uh, ultimately, Michael speaks about enhancing security for all Americans, not for any hyphenated Americans, but for Americans as a national body, uh, as a country that he's willing to put ahead of party, uh, as you saw with his endorsement of an opposition party leader uh, last year's presidential election. And for Michael, ultimately, advancing the public interest is about making sure that everyone is safe, secure, and given a level playing field to pursue the American dream. Michael, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Great, Jordan. Great. Terrific. Thank this has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.